You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because sometimes your imagination needs to roll for initiative. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marsha Ryan Moresca, and this is episode 100. <gasps> the game is afoot. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. <laughs> well, welcome, listeners, and we are very excited to be able to say welcome guests. That's plural as well. We are super excited to have three fantastic guests on this podcast today for a super special episode 100 focused around gaming. Um, so without further ado, I feel like we need to launch into introductions and see who these fine people are. So in doing the annoying thing, I will go around my Zoom screen, and um, Katie, I believe that you're the first one. Oh, all right. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Katie Osborne. I go by Katieosaurus on all the corners of the internet. Um, I am a full-time content creator, and what I do is I talk a lot about neurodivergency in TTRPGs and also in sex and intimacy. So one might be able to say that I work in both type of dungeons. Pause for laughter. <laughs> Oh, I wasn't supposed to read that part. <laughs> Welcome, Katie. And um, next on, on my screen is Gnome. Uh, hi, my name is Andrew Gnome. Uh, you probably know me online as Gnome the Barbarian, uh, that guy who yells about hippos and spaceships and, oh, God, just about everything. I'm not quiet about anything. Um, including I this show. Running, <laughs> including this show. I, I have been waging a campaign for for a while now the, to finally get into this position um i overthink <laughs> everything and by the time this launches uh knock on wood i'm going to use this as the incentive i should have just launched the cartesian system which is my first foray into game design uh so Ooh. that should be that should be out by the time Yay! this launches wow exciting super exciting excellent and last but not least sharon um, I am Sharung Biswas. I am a New York-based game designer, writer, and um, often professor of game design. Um, so currently professor of game design. Um, and, uh, oh my God, I completely forgot what else I want to say about that. Uh, that's, that's, that's me. That's you. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I'm so excited that you could all join us because, you know, most of our guests have been writers. Um, but a lot of our listeners and a lot fiction of our fan writers. base, let's not fiction like, writers, fiction not. writers, right? Not that, not that we're yes, but have been novel novelists quite specifically. Genre, um, fiction genre novelist fiction. Okay, we could really get on a rabbit hole here about the labels. Um, but a lot of our, a lot of our fan base are really into world building for gaming, and that's why they listen. That's what they talk about. That's what they want to get into. So we thought, ah. Oh, Episode 100 needs to be a gift to our fans um, to get into those topics a little bit more. So I'm so excited that you could all join us. So before we like really dive into the topic, I think the question that we always love asking all of our guests is like, what brings you joy in world building? Like, what do you love about world building, whether it's your own or reading other people's or playing with other people's or whatever? I, I will go first just because I have a, a really simple answer. I like making pieces fit together. Um, and that could be 
characters, that could be plot elements, that could be incongruous things like someone is playing a uh, high fantasy game and someone else mentions hot dogs. And now you've got to find a way to justify hot dogs existing in the equivalent of 12th century Moorish Spain. And you just go from there. And there is there is a, a very Lego building part of my brain that, that loves putting all that together into something cohesive, especially when so many of the parts of it are out of my control and are in the hands of the players and the other people who are there at the table. Also, making things gay and making people cry. That Those are, those are big... <laughs> Big pluses. Do those go together? I feel it. Yeah, they often. <laughs> so I don't. Oh, I'm. I'm. Oh, did I interrupt? Sorry, Katie. No, go, no, no. I. I have ADHD. I will interrupt any, everyone all the time. You go, please, please okay. go. No, I. I've been trying to be ever since playing James Morningstar's game about interrupting women. I've been trying to be very careful about that. Um, it's literally a game about interrupting women. That's the point of the game. Um, <laughs> So, um, but I will go because you told me to. I am weird, possibly, a weird choice for this uh, episode because I don't like doing conscious world building very much. I don't like to sit and be like, let me do world building. I was actually thinking about this when preparing because uh, there's a great uh, interview with N.K. Jemison that Ezra Miller did. No, Ezra Miller, Ezra Klein. Ew, not Ezra Miller. Very um, different people. Very, <laughs> very different person. One of them kidnaps people. The other one is a reporter. Right? Uh, I just like the name Ezra. He's the character in my latest novella, that, that, that name. So uh, Ezra Klein's doing an interview where N.K. Jemisin, right, master of the craft, talks about a methodical way of doing world building and things like that. And I'm like, I don't do that at all, right? Or uh, maybe I should say I haven't done that at all, right? Who knows what'll happen in the future? Um, a lot of my world building stuff spins out of the story I'm doing or the game we're playing. Like, obviously, I'll, I'll do some really basic stuff, but... The rest of it spins out. The only time I really do world building is when someone who is commissioning me says, Sharung, write me a new world. And I'm like, oh. And when I was preparing for this podcast, I'm like, how do I do that? I don't know. So I literally called some of my gamer friends and I'm like, how do I do world building? You have seen me do world building. And my friend Lucia, who um, is, has been both a fiction editor and a game person with me, told me that I love incorporating real world uh, things and mythologies and weird stuff and like twisting it. And I'm like, oh, I do do that, don't I? <laughs> Um, so I like doing that, apparently, according to my gamer friends. It's the only time I get to use my history degree, so I consider that entirely valid. I feel like I have such a different answer than everybody Good. else. Like, Good. I kind of feel thing. like there's been a horrible mistake. No, um, well, because my thing is that I like world-building games and, and storytelling games, and that is an entire genre in and of itself in TTRPGs. And so for me, the thing is that I'm I'm really interested in accessibility. I'm really interested in creating a table space where anybody and everybody can sit down and very quickly, very efficiently, and very sort of um, friendshiply is not a word, but uh, you know, <laughs> compassionately. It is tell now. Us, tell us, <laughs> I declare it so. Um, Shakespeare That's did it so That's a world building right there. I know, right? <laughs> friendshiply. Um, but, <laughs> but that's that's what I'm really interested in is the element of sort of collaboration and storytelling that comes from world building games. So when I talk about world building in games, I'm literally talking about games where the world building is the the sort of goal of the story. Um, and that is my wheelhouse. And so I think like 
at the end of the day, the thing that, that just appeals to me the most is that it is, oh, this sounds so pretentious to say out loud, but it's just so human. It's just so human to want to sit around a table and tell a cool and interesting story with people in your life. And I think that there's this very specific genre of games that allows people to do that in a way that a lot of other games don't. Not that those games are less than or or bad in any way, but you don't have to like know modifiers and have a D20 on hand to tell a good story with some of these games. And I, I really like that aspect of it a lot. So I think some of answer. the most, like to, to, to Katie's point, I think some of the most interesting world building happens in these kinds of games, right? So I'm thinking of uh, Companion's Tale by Sweet Potato Press. Uh, Companion's Tale, specifically every round, asks you to make up a random piece of culture in the world that's talking about the stuff that's happened in the game, right? So uh, when I play, I play this game many times. I like it a lot. I play it with my students. We've had people make up songs. We've had people make up recipes. I had someone make up the abstract of a math paper once. Um, I had someone make up a folk game. Because, yeah, that was the session where, like, the mathematicians were the villains. They were, like, destroying the moon to, like, prove a... Yeah, I gotta say, like, this podcast is called World Building for Masochists, but making up a math theorem paper might be beyond the edge even of where I could follow. It, it worked for uh, it worked for Futurama. Uh, remember when they had, I mean, the, they had the body swapping episode and they actually had to make the mathematical theorem on the wall for how that body swapping would go to be but, able to show it. But isn't that an interesting point, though? Like, like there, that, I feel that game uh, elicits some of the most interesting world building because it's a storytelling game. It's a game where you are, the point of the game is to build the world. And it asks you not to just be like, what are dragons like? It asks you, make up a folk tale that people are telling you. Make up a dance that people are doing. Oh, and that so creates very rich, textured world. Yeah, it's, I, I recommend the game uh, very highly. I, I absolutely love that. And it's um, part of, I love my players. I love them all to death. Um, my, I, I've loved every table I've had. I tend to be a lot of people's first DM. So I tend to be a lot of people, they'll never have played a tabletop game before, and I'm introducing them to, I'm introducing them and working on all of these assumptions that they have about the genre. And so they've seen Community, and they've seen the D&D episode, and they've seen, you know, any, any representation, and I'm kind of opening them up to more of what's there. So I absolutely love, in like our Star Trek Adventures game that I have on Sundays, um, being able to take our science officer and she's not just translating this alien language i invent effectively a k-drama that she is trying to watch and trying to figure out the cultural nuances from how we're describing this piece of culture and anytime i get to do that that is absolutely when i'm at my happiest um is is tricking them into playing a a much a much less uh, number crunchy and much more world building kind of game uh to to katie's uh point um do you have any favorites in that genre shout out because for me I've, I'm really limited in that. I've got, like, A Quiet Year by Avery Alder, uh, which is a really great map-making and storytelling game of uh, a community building itself back up after an apocalypse. Um, but they, How they... long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I have so many that I love. Microscope by Ben Robbins is really good. Um, ben Robbins has done 
uh, several like sort of different versions. So there's one called Kingdom where you are specifically talking about like you make up a lineage of a family and you tell their history. Um, there's a sort of uh, reduced version of Microscope called I'm Sorry Did You Say Street Magic, which is I honestly think one of the best storytelling games out there. It takes you three seconds to learn and like it's just it's the best game. Also, there's a deck based version called uh, For the Queen that I am also very obsessed with. Um, and yeah, like Quiet Year, like you mentioned, that's another really good one. Um, and what I love about all of them is that they all kind of take this concept of like, we're going to create a world, we're going to talk about it, we're going to give our players the opportunity to have like specific moments in those worlds. And then we're going to sort of bring in the TTRPG format of it and we're gonna act some of that out. Um, and so what happens is it winds up being this really organic experience of you don't have to sit at a table and sweat, you know, world building for like five hours to like get your novel written. Rather than that, it's like, hey, oh, let's five just have hours. this like really- oh, if only- <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm very good at writing books, okay? I'm very efficient. Um, I mean, just the world building is where- like a three year process or 30 right or- but but and that's what I, yeah but that's what i love about it is that it becomes so ex- like expedient and it becomes this really like real thing of like you can go down to the smallest smallest moment or you can say you know what we're going to create an entire galaxy next door and both of those things are just as valid but they're also just as generative and i think as storytellers that's one of the most important things that we can have are the ability to sort of like create those generative moments in order to give our players or, you know, readers the best experience possible. And so rather than saying, this is my thing and and everything, it's you get to share it with people. And I think that is so rad. Does sound rad. (laughs) I think some of the games that do very interesting things with world building start by making you do a very weird kind of world building. So Dialect, right, by Hakan Ola and Kate Himes is really interesting because the game each round asks you to create a word used in your world and then play out a scene based, like, using that word. So you make the word first. Um, obviously, there's some prompts to help you. They don't just say, make words, my dudes. Um, um, <laughs> but so there, you're creating this weird, very specific piece and then creating the story around that. I think that's really interesting. Another one uh, that's bizarrely cool is, so um, you might know I was the co-editor of Honey and Hot Wax, an anthology of erotic art games, right? Like got two grants, it's a book of sex games. There are a number of games there that do really interesting things, right? So like Lucian Khan's game, uh, uh, which is called, I forget, In the Clefts of the Valley, I think. I forgot the exact name. But Lucian Khan's game is a game where you play as explorers um, and landscapes, and you, like, touch each other and grope each other, basically, in ways that the other person tells you to. Uh, And you do that while narrating the exploration of very particular landscapes, right? So the other player might be like, I would like you to... Um, stroke my lips or I would like you to literally one thing I did during playtesting was palpitate his genitals was the verb he literally tweeted like I want you to palpitate my genitals I'm like amazing um, and but you do that and so that 
that game uses this sense of touch and physicality to inform the world building you're doing because I'm doing that while describing, I don't know, the dark forest or the the enchanted moon that I'm exploring. And so that game as well uses a very weird uh, sensory input while dialect uses a very um, interesting like intellectual prompt. Um, uh, Lucian Khan's game uses a weird sensory input to help you do world building. So I think some of these games can can break the boundaries of what we think of as like world building. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes tools. so much backward sense because we talk about the contours of the body. We use a lot of landscape-oriented descriptive terms. So yeah, why not literalize that and, and turn it into a game? From all y'all, what I'm hearing is that I need to be playing a lot more of these games because it sounds Everyone, to me... we all need it to play sounds more games. Like, we like, all always need to play more like games. The <laughs> Wait, do you mean world building games or sex games? Because they're two different... <laughs> Yes. Are they? Or no? los I, I, Still yes, role exactly. playing. I Still world building. Hey, world I, get, building I get royalties from Honey and Hot Wax, so I will always talk about <laughs> Honey and Hot Wax. Okay. Okay. Also, asking for a friend, where does one pick up a copy? Belgrade Press. West? Okay, because I just went. Okay, all right. Uh, similarly, I'm uh, we, everyone's talking about so different at the time, but as soon as you mentioned Kingdom, a game about making the lineages of a royal family, Cass's face. Uh, like literally, uh, probably that should be a, a picture in the dictionary next to her face lit up because just her <laughs> eyes started so twinkling and just <laughs> yes, just yeah. I, that's that is the kind of thing I do for fun. And the, these world building type games sound like all the best bits of just playing make believe with your friends, which is a high I've been chasing since I was eleven. Like bring it back <laughs> in my life. So yeah, that's actually amazing. that's a, a really good point though is that the playing make believe with your friends. Um, I've done a lot of world building just on my own, a lot of you know writing stuff down and getting things ready. Um, my core, the the games I've played at home have, with very few exceptions, for the past twenty years, been taking place in the same growing and evolving world. And the you know different people have been playing different characters and it's been cycling in and out. But it doesn't. When I sit down to do something like write a world anvil or write a design doc for the game, it takes a lot of, for me, the joy out of the experience because mm. I can know all this, but it doesn't become real until it's at the table. And part of it not being real until it's at the table means that um, whenever someone has a better idea than I do, it's just there. And it's it's ours now. It's all of ours now because it, it came up in collaboration. Um, that if I, if I wanted to just do it on my own, I would just be a writer. No... <laughs> Sorry, not just you. <laughs> if I wanted to do it on my own, my own, I would pour my my energy and attention into writing a novel. And instead, I'm I'm taking part in this collaborative storytelling endeavor that is just one of my favorite. And things. it's really interesting because we do talk sometimes about how books are collaborative in a way that you can never flesh out everything. The reader is your partner in the storytelling, but you, the author, almost never know what's happening on on that half. Um, whereas, yeah, when it's in the moment, it's it's so much more real and alive and visceral and it changes. And I think that's one of the most fun things about this podcast for, for the three of us hosts is that we've been co-building this world. We get input from so many of our guests into this world and, and we're putting it together collaboratively and it has become a monster all of its own. <laughs> I mean, I think some of the best world building happens even in games that are traditionally very one way in terms of exposition of the world, right? So let's say something like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Dungeons and Dragons traditionally has the GM play 
every aspect of the world except to the player's characters, right? But even in those kinds of games, the best moments of world building happen, in my opinion, when the GM asks the players for input and then incorporates that input into their answer, which might create very unexpected things. It might create things that GM has never thought of and things like that. But, but I think the the uh, what uh, Andrew was saying, like this this shared world building aspect is, is extremely powerful. And not just like, obviously many GMs do the thing like, oh, you're in a tavern. Tell me what clothing the person next to you is wearing or whatever, right? Sure, that's cool. But you can also do bigger things like, oh, we're in a city. Tell me what's the most prominent organization in the city or building in the city or whatever in the city. And then GMs can, uh, um, skilled GM, that sounds mean. Some GMs <laughs> can weave that, GMs whose style that is, I don't know, can like include incorporate that. I don't know, because there are lots of like, I, I feel I feel we ha- in the T-Champion job we have all these things, this is good GMing, this is bad, and that's completely, utterly wrong every single time, right? One of the best games I had was the most railroaded game imaginable, <laughs> right? But it was amazing because the game wasn't about the plot. The game was about how our characters felt about the plot, right? Um, so... All these truisms about GMs are tend to be silly. skilled at certain um, skilled as opposed to skill, other skills. Yeah, right? yeah. A, a particular skill GMs, set. Yeah. Right. So certain GMs <laughs> have this ability, and my friend told me I do, so I'm going to blush a little bit. I don't blush. My skin's too brown. Um, certain <laughs> GMs have this ability of like reincorporating these things that players give them, and I really like that. For me, that's very fun to do that and to do this shared world building where the GM might have ideas and like an overall structure because I also strongly believe that authorial intent can be very uh, exciting to work, to play through and read through. But like this this shared thing can sometimes make for the most interesting worlds because like multiple perspectives collide and what 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 um, fruits burst out of this point of collision um, can be like wondrous and sweet. I think, I mean, that's exactly the the point there is no matter like even if you have a gm who is like meticulously planning the whole world out much the way we do with with our books that it still sort of lives in this stringer's cat space of it's not going to be real until a player interacts with it and that interaction is going to change it in some way and that's where it be- it becomes alive I also think that there's like a lot of really interesting opportunity to bring in and use different tools. Like one of my favorite things to do as a DM is to incorporate games like Microscope or For the Queen, Quiet or whatever, and say, okay, before we start our D&D campaign, before we, we even start meeting these characters, let's build the world together. And then not only do you get the opportunity to sort of like co-create and collaborate on building this world, it creates a situation in which one, your characters are, or your players, excuse me, are super stoked because they had a hand in it. They are they have the opportunity to explore things that are cool and exciting for them. Um, but then, even more than that, you also get the generative sort of character element of you know all of a sudden NPCs start getting populated. You know, like oh, there's a mysterious town. Who's the mayor? What's his deal? What's the deal with the mayor's daughter? Like, and the more that you delve, and the more you sort of I, I keep saying like microscope, but it's just because I'm, I'm running it for D3 at C. So it's like on my brain. But it's one of those things where it's like all of a sudden you have so much investment in the world and it's something that you built together. And so like, I think that there's just a, 
there's like a beauty to that. And then being able to say, okay, now not only did we make this thing together, now we get to play in it. Now we get to sandbox in it and see what happens. That to me is just so exciting. And I think that it's, it's generative in a way that books are cool. I like books. I read them. But you don't, you don't get to like fan fiction the world unless you write fan fiction <laughs> but this is like you're you're constantly sort of like going back and forth and i just think that is cool i guess i'm gonna end everything i say on this podcast with and i think that's neat and then i'll just stop talking so that's and we do, we do too yeah so it's <laughs> you're right and you should say it. it's neat all of these things you've been you all three of you have been saying about these different games that are basically just like a world building exercise, but gamified, which sounds absolutely fucking amazing to me. <laughs> um, is, I mean, these, these sound just like great tools to then, you know, A, that's going to be fun in and of itself. And then you, you have this great place that you all just made. And of course you're going to play in it. Like, oh my God. Yeah. You could do like a better version of, of Mary Shelley being stuck in a mansion with Lord Byron. Um, you could build, you could, like you could use the game to build a world together and then say, okay, everyone go write a story about it and come back and see like what wildly yeah. different stories you got from the same world. Like from a writer's perspective, that sounds super fun. But from someone who works in immersive theater, like I'm totally with you on, it's a totally different kind of fun world building when you are not in control of everything, when... I mean, for me, it's often children are in control of some of the things. And, oh, boy, does that get wild. But it, it, there's a different energy. It's a totally different energy, like, within my body when I'm working in one sphere versus the other. I, I'm trying to remember who wrote it, but I'm pretty sure there is a one-page RPG that is you're stuck in a mansion with Lord Byron. <laughs> it, was by, it was written an RPG. by uh, Death by a Badger Is it Oliver Darcher? Um, yeah. Yeah. Who is uh, last, whose real name I can't remember right now, but he, like, makes his one-page. Uh, Oliver yeah, Darkshire. Yeah. Uh with an excellent example of, of choosing a bitch and surname. I just love that you both have this, like, on tap. As soon as, yeah. like, they... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? He's, he's very famous as a D&D creator, actually. <laughs> yeah. He also, he, uh, he, he talking about smut in, in games, um, he likewise has uh, been doing things like putting together an anthology of D&D villains but gay. So <laughs> let's make Strahd von Zarevich a leather daddy and see where we uh, go from point there. Point of order, uh, when was Strahd not gay? <laughs> uh, I, as, 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 a, as a, uh, a white dude, I'm just going to say uh, be, having bad luck with a woman and then moping about it to the point that it, it injures that a whole bunch so of other gay people feels really <laughs> strange. Oh my God. I, moping I that dramatically <laughs> about someone is so gay? My God. I, I, was say, I, I, I will take a stand and say yeah. Zod von Strad von Zarevich is straight coded. I will take a stand. I was going to say, I was like, I just want to see like a paper about like the queerification of Strad because like, damn. <laughs> there is a paper on analog game studies about queer trauma in, Stra in Curse of Strad, I think. Yeah. Um, so look that up, Katie. <laughs> I will. It does, though, it does kind of uh, tie to a different thing. I'm kind of jumping topics here. But games are a place where we get to explore things that uh, we can't really explore or easily explore in real life or are not ready yet to explore in real life. Um, and one of the things that was always most fascinating to me were villains. You know, growing up, I always wanted to be Captain Hook, not Peter Pan, because Captain Hook is clearly having the most fun. Like, you look at him and you go, that is a man who knows exactly what he wants and what he's doing. And he's in charge, and it's great. And he has an amazing coat. Yeah, no, fancy as all heck. 
And the, you know, growing up, especially in, in American culture in the 80s and 90s, uh, means that if I liked villains, I also liked the queer characters, uh, because all of the, the queer coding and disability coding and, and race coding that goes into so many of those villains. Mm. And so having games as a, a chance to play with what makes a villain, and because every game has this great antagonist, hopefully, even if it's just the world itself that you are, are struggling against. And so uh, having a, a chance to explore those things leads into one of gaming's strengths for me, which is that chance to play with identity and and experimenting with who you are and who you understand yourself to be in a safe place, which led 13-year-old undiagnosed neurodivergent me to not understand why everyone played Malkavians so wrong in, in the world of darkness, because that's not how you play a mad person. This is what madness is, I say, not, not questioning or examining that understanding at all. Yeah. That's so real. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the things I'm loving hearing is just the joy of collaboration and the joy of building together. Are there particular challenges or considerations that you bring to world building when it comes to that collaboration, either to facilitate that collaboration or make it more fun to play with? Or um, I'm thinking of hanging out with Cass and Marshall to bring things back on the rails when they go like horribly, horribly <laughs> I think we love you, Rowena. I think what a lot of (laughs) listeners know that Rowena is the rails, and Cass and I are the (laughs) offset. I think what a lot of novice game designers, or I should say, starting game, which is the same as novice, I guess, um, starting game don't think about, or sometimes don't think about. I've seen this in my students, for example. uh, Are are two like opposite? extreme that are both bad right i've ha- i was running a game workshop once at a museum at the museum of the moving image i was artist in resident there for two years and i was running a game workshop and someone came up to me and was like oh i have i've designed a game I'm like oh, okay cool tell me about it and they designed a like 200 um google doc page world bible right and i'm like that is not a game that is a very interesting world bible but that's not a game right so Overwriting, I would say, is a is a difficult thing because um, then you are you are you expecting your players to encyclopedia learn this? Are you expecting are you expecting a GM if you're writing a, a TTRPG to encyclopedia learn this? If you're writing a, a video game, how are you delivering all this content to your player? Like, what are you doing with it, right? At the other end of the spectrum, a lot of novice game designers are like, oh, this idea of freeform games and minimalist RPGs are very popular now. I'm going to give zero direction to any players, go forth and give birth to this world, right? And that's also very hard because if you're just like, make something, like we all know, we're all writers, right? Like if you're just like, write on this blank page, we're like, what the hell am I supposed to write, right? <laughs> um, so I think when I, I make a lot of like freeform sorts of games, but I think the key is what, how do you, like, how do you elicit these interesting world-building ideas from the people you want to listen them from, be it the players, the GMs, or whatever, right? Um, oh. Do you give guided prompts, like <laughs> questions, for example? Um, do, do you ask leading questions that will elicit answers? Do you provide other kinds of stimulus, like palpitating genitals, for example? <laughs> um, the game that, that that I made that won the Indicate Award, that was shown in the galleries and stuff, asked people to eat food and then use the textures, mouthfeel, flavors, and tastes 
to elicit a prompt about what does what memory are you consuming as an alien parasite, right? And so I think the balance lies in um, how do you give just enough for a player slash whoever to use to do interesting world building, and also different in, for different games interesting can mean different things, right? So the game Feast, the one I just mentioned about the eating, there isn't a lot of um, dramatic tension that goes moment to moment. So the, the the questions and prompts there are very different from a game like, um, I don't know, Spire, right? Which is a game about like, are we terrorists or are we not terrorists, right? Where there's a lot of moment to moment drama that's that's like trying to, trying to figure out this very deep question. And so the prompts there are very specific or a game like Masks, right? Which is a game about superheroes who are all horny and sad teenagers. The prompts there, <laughs> the prompts so there um, are, exactly, it's a metaphor for, for a lot of teenage things, right? So many The things. prompts there elicit a certain kind of world building and the prompts there have been chosen very, very carefully to elicit that kind of world building. I think there's one of the big challenges in um, freeform role-playing game design. One of the things that comes to mind for that is uh, Fiasco. Yes. How? Yeah, oh, I love Fiasco. Me too. I, I, out of curiosity, as writers, <laughs> have you ever played Fiasco? This is the first I'm Bo- hearing. Okay. Book out an afternoon. <laughs> it is. It is a. It is a game about making a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. Um, uh, at the darkly comic intersection of lust, fear, and ambition is how it's described. Sounds hot. It's good. Your characters have much more, much more enthusiasm than skill and much higher ambitions than ability. And that is the rule for everyone. That sounds like film school. Um, But (laughs) it's, uh, there's a reason I suggest it to writers. But as a game, the only time you're rolling dice is not when you're playing. You roll dice in advance to set up what the world is, what the interactions between people are. And you'll roll this big pool of dice and then everyone goes around the table taking dice out of it and uh, making things true about the world based on the number that's been rolled. So there will be, for instance, relationships between everyone where, uh, Cass, you decide, because I'm sitting to your left, you have to have one relationship to your left and right, you decide to create a family relationship with me and that's a two, so you pull a two out. And I see that there's only ones and threes left. Well, one as a family relationship is we are... Uh, ex-in-laws, and three as a family relationship is, uh, we're twins but we're both <laughs> mad about it. And it all of the prompts are carefully written to evoke yeah. a certain t- uh, tone. So a fiasco game can very easily be uh, Brick, which is one of my favorite uh, film noir movies set in an American high school, uh, or it can be <laughs> Austin Powers. And that all depends on the careful crafting, uh, like Sharang was saying, of the 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 tone of the prompts that are coming through. Uh, a good example is when you have like a weapon that's supposed to be an important thing in the plot, uh, you could write gun. Or it is much more interesting to write a pair of nylon pantyhose. And to to see what that makes happen out of this game is is always really interesting to see. I think well, one I forgot the original question. Um, cha- challenges <laughs> and and awesome things about players. Con- con- considerations yeah. and challenges for facilitating collaborative. I, right, I think I when, had your face, point. when your face lit up a few minutes ago and you went, ah, I think it was something about the how. It was about like, how do you lead? Yeah. I was like, I had the Please. answer, but then I was like, I don't remember how to make it make sense in context. <laughs> so here we go. So I think like the thing with me is that 
I have a really sort of interesting background in that I was a theater kid who went into improv and then from improv I went into Shakespeare as Cass knows uh and so like I wound up with like a weird amount of master's degrees and a lot of stuff that didn't make any sense on paper um but what wound up happening Uh, when I found TTRBGs was that I realized that a lot of that sort of theatrical improvised improvised, like theater idea of yes ands that is really I think pivotal to a lot of like world building and it's so easy I think to get hung up as a writer on this like like I want it to be this thing and this way but I think it's possible to even sort of yes and your own ideas and say rather than you know gun what if it was like yes and what if there was also nylon pantyhose or something like that and so I think joyfully and enthusiastically accepting whatever is thrown at you that to me is this is the signal of a truly skilled and truly good uh, DM because if you have that yes and component your world is always going to get bigger even if the answer is no because you can yes and with a no or like I don't think that would work or you know maybe we need to throw a different type of spell at it or something but when you have that ability to just sort of look at everything that is being offered at the sort of proverbial and literal table and say all of this is good all of this is usable like how can we bring this into the world that's so exciting and i think that really gives you an opportunity to tell a much more nuanced much more compelling and much more structured story Mm. than by just being like no only my ideas are the good ones and i shall shut down everything else um and that what is sort of like how i facilitate is every idea is the best idea that i've ever heard Um, because when I was in grad school, uh, one of the students in my cohort once said that like a a good director thinks that they are the smartest person in the room. The best directors know that they are not. And (laughs) that always stuck with me. And so I kind of use that when I'm DMing now. So what I've, what I've learned is I need to play. (laughs) I would love that. You are always invited. Game with like right here, like this, these six, that'd be a great, let's do it. I've got okay, I got let's go right Let's now. go right now. Not right now. Not right now. We have time limits. But I was going to say, uh, like, that is to me what, as someone who has played games but not ever GM'd or DM'd them. We'll get you. Those are the GMs and DMs I love the most are the ones who don't, like, I, I personally don't like it when a game feels like I'm being driven through a set of, like, video game challenges. Like, you must do this thing to do this thing to do this thing. I like the games where... Um, uh, Zach Armstrong, who Kate also knows, um, allowed our party to derail things magnificently, which led to us having a, uh, this was in a Star Wars game, and we had a dance-off party DJed by a droid with an abolitionist senator. It was, I'm sure, not something Zach intended to happen, but it was one of the most memorable moments of the entire campaign, because when we said, can we go dancing with this guy, he said, yeah, sure, let's go find a bar <laughs> somewhere, and there was a droid DJ and it was amazing. And it was all because Zach was always willing to be like, you people are maniacs and I love it. <laughs> I'm going to offer a counterpoint here um, because I think we, um, we always uh, lionize this idea. I think sometimes to a very annoying degree because uh, we often forget that the GM uh, in specific, specific kinds of games may have done a lot of labor before <laughs> the game to help the experience and also that the GM also has desires of play that they want like they're like oh I'm excited about this that the players are going to do I want to 
talk about this in our game, right? So I have a great example, um, Sarah Darkmagic, who did a lot of work with D&D before, is a Dartmouth alum, so I met her when I was an undergrad once. Uh, she was coming back for like alumni stuff. And she uh, told me the most annoying experience for her was she was running a fourth edition game, right? And remember, fourth edition of D&D is a very tactical combat game. It is, I would personally argue it's less a role-playing game, it's more a tactical combat miniatures game, right? Yeah, um, And so the players the previous week had been like, okay, great, next week we're going to infiltrate the temple. And she's like, amazing, sounds like a great time, let's pack up and come back next week. And the next week, so she went home. Remember, fourth edition is a tackle combat miniatures game. So she designed everything in the temple, okay, uh, encounters, fights, which take a lot of time in fourth edition to design. And then at the table, the player's like, actually, we don't want to do this, we need something else. Now, there's two things, right? That I think in some ways that devalues the labor that the GM has put. Yeah. Um, uh, it's like, she's like, I prepared all this, um, and it also it also um, kind of breaks the social contract of the game that mm. we're all in this together. Um, so I think it is very. That's why I'm a terrible academic, right? In that everything is nuanced and no, there's no right answer, right? I thought that was the peak of academia. <laughs> <laughs> there's this great energy that comes from this give and take of like asking GMs, like, "Oh, I want to try this weird thing," right? But there's also, there should be a recognition that if a GM has put time and effort into something that you know takes time and effort, yeah. and that the GM is excited to do this thing and you know they're excited to do this, it's kind of a dick move to be like, actually, yeah. no. Just like, you know, just like being a murder hobo is a dick move, right? Because <laughs> if the GM is like, we're going to make this interesting world with all the NPCs, and then the only thing you say is, I want to stab everyone, then you're not playing the game that you have signed up to play, right? So I think when we say, when we um, elevate this idea that the GM can take everything you throw at them, I think it's important to remember, well, are you being nice in what you are throwing at them? Because yeah. the GM is also a player. They are not your... Um, storytelling robot right there, right? So. Very much. And I think that is very much a case of like, know your game, know your table, know your group, um, and know what kind of a game you're playing. And yes, respect your GM as someone in this collaboration process. They are not the the chatbot feeding you prompts. They, they are a partner in all of this. Um, well, collaboration involves trust. Yeah. And I think that that's part of... That's part of what makes, you know, gameplay fun is that it's not just AI feeding you prompts. It's relational. It's relationships. And there's trust involved. When I when I talked earlier about being a lot of people's first DM, that's actually a good chunk of what I'm uh, getting people to unlearn is the, the mimetic idea of the DM as, you know, rocks fall, everyone dies, I'm the asshole in charge and all of you can, can just deal with me. Whereas, literally, at any point, I could kill every player at the table and that would be the end of it. There's no, there, there is no fighting God as far as this is concerned. You can certainly try, roll for initiative, but the, the, the conversation that you have with players before any game, any kind of game, where you're talking about, what do you want to get out of this? What are you excited about in this? Let's you do things, um, it lets you avoid, if y'all are okay with a short story, lets you avoid the mistake I made in my very first game I was running as an adult, which was, I was super, I was, you know, a history major and a religious studies double major, and I was going into the seminary, and I was super interested in, in worlds and peoples and religions, and so I made all of this political intrigue stuff going on. 
and session one, minute one, my players got distracted by a piece of background information. I had just put a carriage with a royal seal on it going by, and they followed it because it was a shiny object, and I didn't know not to jingle keys in front of players yet. And so... <laughs> Uh, they followed that to a place I hadn't built, a dockside warehouse, where I just had to real quick get it out of there so it went in. And all of a sudden, they're playing an intrigue plot about what's going on at the docks that has royals involved. By session three, there is a plot going on about doppelgangers taking over <laughs> the city. By session six, they have uh, literally burned down the city in rescuing one of their people from the Inquisition, stolen a prison ship, and sailed in the opposite direction of the plot. Oh, no. And that... That's just going to happen. And so uh, I, if I had been a more experienced team at that point, I would have been able to say to them, hey, this is the game I'm interested in running. These are kind of the points I'm interested in doing. How does that sound to y'all as opposed to you can do whatever you want? Luckily, I was able to just just finesse my way through, and it wasn't until after the fact that they knew I had no idea what I was doing for any of that. I still have a binder uh, in my DM case with all of the prep work I did for that game. Nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's something we learned in, in our Shakespeare school is that sometimes the boundaries help facilitate imagination. Um, sometimes the limitations actually help you. And as loath as I am to have to move things on, I think we're going to have to because we are approaching the end of our hour. Rowanna, is, am I right? Did I steer myself you back on a rail? <laughs> no, yes. Un unfortunately, we, we have we have righted the ship and we are still on the map. And, and as fun as this has been, we should absolutely do it again sometime, by the way. Awesome. So Cass, would, would you like to um, to invite our parting gift? Yes. From our... So usually we have our guests who, who are usually you know genre novelists um, leave us some parting gift, a piece of trivia in, in our co-built world. But in this case, we would love for you all to give it a slightly different spin and, and tell us something that you would like to see in a TTRPG based off of our world. And to give the short version of what this world is, um, it is an Age of Sail world. Uh, it is highly interconnected. No land masses are terribly far apart from each other, so they, they all pretty much know each other and have known each other for a very long time. It is an, a, a world that is light on asshole nations because that interconnectivity does not facilitate nations being huge jerks without there being big repercussions. And possibly the, the tentpole concept of this world are the magical nude gates, which are teleportation gates from one location to another. But when you go through, nothing except uh, biological living matter can go through, so you have to go through ass naked um, and come out the other side or if you go through with clothes on they vanish as you go through they disappear and you come out buck ass naked on the other side and that is um <laughs> the concept driving this world in so many ways as we have continued to build it over the years uh because it's just fascinating so in brief um anything you would like to to see in a ttrpg based off of that world and it might be i don't know a character class or a campaign seed or or a particular location you'd want to investigate in that Anything like that, sort of in one minute or less. <laughs> so I completely misinterpreted um, the prompt when I read it in the doc, so I will need a second to think about this. I thought when you said in our world, I thought you meant in 21st century oh, United States. And then I thought the oh, I thought the mechanics I'd like to introduce to our world now that we're talking uh, about that. Yeah, uh, lots of I think if we introduced the magical nude gate into this world, it would it would it would solve a lot of problems. That's like literally I'm like, oh if, and I'm like, oh okay, I, I guess I'll think of that. So I thought of completely different things, so I will go last. I've also kind of got a subversion of Please the prompt, do. so By maybe I'll go first. Um, I, uh, subverting the prompt, I'd actually like to propose a game in your world. Um, I'd like to propose a method of 
uh, ritualized storytelling, where the uh, the the practice storyteller has these kind of commedia dell'arte style, you know, stock characters and adventures and stories that they're telling. The listeners, however, have a set of stock phrases that they're able to say that influence the plot. And so they might be things like, he's describing the villain, and then I'm borrowing this from a, a great game called Polaris, uh, Chivalric Romance at Utmost North, I think is the title. It's by P.H. Lee, right? Yes, uh, where you can say, for instance, you go too far, sir. And you go too far, sir, is a mechanical choice that you're making. And so the storyteller is incorporating the the um, ideas and opinions and all this of the children that are listening to the stories while still working to tell these kinds of cultural narratives about this hero defeats this villain or these lovers finally find each other. I love it. Um, it's like Commedia dell'arte meets Punch and Judy meets yes. Rocky Horror Picture Show with live casts. Like it's it's oh, all very much together. That kind of, the, the British panto idea of the kids shouting out, he's yeah. behind you, and then the people on the... Or Blue's Clues, or yeah. the Explorer. Like, that that method of interacting... Um, my mom was a singer-songwriter when I was a kid, and I got in trouble uh, for correcting stories oh, that were happening on stage sometimes when I was a, a toddler. And so I'm making a world where that is expected. Is accepted. Love it. Kate... I would like to offer a class, um, and this particular type of class is a sort of blend of like a medical doctor, but also like an alchemist slash artificer. With the reason being that you're talking about your new gates, and that immediately in my mind went, well, what do you do if you have a cavity? Or what do you do if like you had like a hip replacement? And so what I would like to present is a world in which there there's a specific job where these doctors, these medical professionals have sort of taken science and engineering and like biomechanical workings and they have applied it to physics. Right. They, they've figured out how to take only natural elements. And that is how they do surgeries. That is how they do repairs. That is how they care for the disabled. That Very is cool. like, you know, your cavities or whatnot. Um, yeah. So then that way, if you have to use the transportation system, your like hip replacement isn't getting like ripped out every two weeks. Because that would be unfortunate. That would be unfair, unfortunate. And we have talked a little about like different things that might like if it's integrated enough with your body does it stick with you we've mostly said yes but we didn't have a how and i've and got so a, that's an awesome how i've got i've got a thread that. i can share later that's about uh y'all mentioned magic in salt and uh salt makes really great tattoo ink so having okay. that kind of biomechanical yes, yes. tattooing through magical salt that allows you to connect to your prosthetic and maybe even Love use it. it in a little bit better way yeah Love it. So I have a systemic awesome. concern to add to this game, right? Because a lot of these semi-historical kind of Western RPGs uh, tend to have a lot of tend to be concerned a lot with equipment, right? But this game, uh, I would imagine people in this world are less concerned with possessions and equipment because they are ephemeral. Like if you have to travel through a nude gate. All your plate equipment are gone and you have to get completely new ones wherever you are, right? So for a systemic concern, how do you as a game designer offer the same um, 
uh, serotonin boosts, not serotonin, dopamine boosts uh, from like finding equipment, treasure and things? Or how yeah. do you offer the same modularity of like, oh, which weapon am I going to pick for this fight? Which potion am I going to take for this challenge? How do you offer the same modularity and um, treasury things without using equipment as a mechanic in the game? Right? I think it'd be really interesting if this game did not use equipment and you have to think of it, the designer has to think, as in you three, have to think of a different way um, to, to do the same things that equipment does in other games. I think that would be very, very interesting and very unique in this game. Oh, that sweet. Awesome. I found the Pythagorean theorem that. in this dungeon. <laughs> now, I can, now I can equip that theorem uh, along with this. Fabulous. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much. This has been just wonderfully delightful. And yes, we must have you all back again at some point and, you know, book like a whole table session. We could do this for another eight hours if I'm getting any indication. <laughs> yeah, just to... <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I know that our listeners are going to be absolutely thrilled to get this angle on world building. So thank you so much. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. We've now completed 100 episodes, and we're not slowing down. Our next episode goes up on April 26, where we'll delve deep into all the details of how magic works in the MNG world. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, my entire Meridane Saga series, or Oena's The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill. Links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochist.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com we also have a discord chat room linked to the about the show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast we'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts <laughs> <laughs>